Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Healer podcast. This week, I have a great interview for you with Nathan Warren, and Nathan wrote a really fun and interesting bio, and so here we go. Nathan is an earthling, a lover of life. He is a co-creator, along with his wife, Amanda, with two beautiful children, Magnolia and Finn. He is a blue heart, meaning he believes in love like a river, a wellspring filled with the potential to flow out from each one of us into the world bringing life to all that it touches, just as a river brings life to every valley it flows through. Nathan is the co-founder of Heart River, a nested valley community dreamed into existence in Oregon's coastal range mountains, just west of Philomath. And he is the co-creator of the Community of Love and Appreciation, an online community inspired by just three words, love and appreciation, and woven together by a belief in the shared reality of life on earth. Nathan is the co-author of Conscious Community Theory, an organizational function theory that seeks to put all human-designed systems, technologies, and processes in service to life on Earth through the elevation of human awareness and through the softening of human purpose. He is a grape grower and winemaker and co-owner of Harris Bridge Vineyard, winery and distillery. He teaches corporate finance at the university level where he asks students to wrestle with the sources and drivers of value within a living world. And he is a legal information officer with the state of Oregon, where he works in support of the humanization of the correctional system through the Oregon way. Nathan loves moments immersed in water, in music and poetry, and in the presence of loves. He believes in realities like you, the forest, the ocean, gravity and sunlight, and he believes in ideas like original love and native intelligence. His daily practices are observing, understanding, and learning, and his vision is for a world that blooms into a partnership ecosystem, flowing love and appreciation for life in all directions at once. Nathan lives for a sincere connection, and he invites you to reach out. He looks forward to meeting you soon. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Nathan Warren. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I'm your host. And you're in for a treat today. I'm really excited to have a conversation with Nathan Warren. Nathan um, is an individual who is doing many really cool things in the world. He's an adjunct professor at the Oregon State University. He is owner of Harris Bridge Vineyard, along with his wife, Amanda Sever. He is, and I'm not sure what he would comment, he's the founder or facilitator of a really amazing um, community called the Community of Love and Appreciation. And that's how I kind of found my way to to meet Nathan. Um, He has two children and 
he somehow blends all of these things um, in a really amazing way. And I think I think we're going to learn a lot from him today. So Nathan, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Avine. Yes, this is beautiful to be here. And so I, th- I guess we can begin just how I found my way to you. I think it was actually through perhaps our mutual admiration of Sophie Strand, yes. um, the amazing poet and thinker. And I found my way to your online community, this community of love and appreciation. And it just had a really different energy, a, re- a more authentic feel than a lot of the communities that I, I would say I have found on Facebook. And so um, I think that your energy somehow um, is is a big part of that. And I just, maybe we could start there about that community of love and appreciation, your ideas behind that, what that is. Well, let's start maybe by, by exploring how I came to know Sophie. Sure. Um, it was through someone in our community. And so our community of love and appreciation is what we call a conscious community, a conscious community theory organization. And what that means is it's not got a hard script. Um, it's not got uh, set leaders and and followers. It is uh, an assemblance of people who are willing to participate and engage and bring what they have to the fore and and share it generously so that we can all learn and grow together. And um, one of my dear friends uh, brought forth a post from Sophie Strand, and immediately um, I, I fell in love with her presence. Um, and it's odd to say that, um, given that we're talking about a, a Facebook post um, and not a physical presence. But the reality is, um, with some people, you get a sense of the depth of their experience through their expert uh, expression um, through their years of experience that just pour out onto the page like it does with Sophie. Mm-hmm. And so um, so that is how I came to know Sophie. And through Sophie, uh, who is someone who talks at some length about um, conscious community theory concepts, interstitial intelligence, um, uh, kind of the uh, melting the composting of the individual into the collective um, that uh, gave me a lot of opportunity to uh, to explore and respond. Um, and as I was responding, I think to one of her posts, I came to you, and um, and that is what's happening across our globe. Um, we are seeing this um, this kind of weave occurring across the globe. And so our community is um, is a model for how that might look on a on a more regional level. Um, uh, that weaving that we can do so effectively through technology now. How does it come back to the community, and how do how do we in close proximity allow that kind of uh, generous exchange? Um, you know, we've come become a little bit afraid of one another in our mm-hmm. culture. And um, uh, there's a lot of talk of things like boundaries and these kinds of things. And and we are a community that really upholds understandings. We we work for understandings. We're ready to work for understandings. And so um, when, when you are able to do 
uh, that in close proximity. And then you tie it back to this um, technology that is international. Now we're talking about, I think, um, something as, as far-reaching as global peace being possible, global understanding being possible, because now we are um, from soil uh, to starseed, really fully able to connect. That's beautiful. And can you just explain, because I know there's a, you know, you've kind of mentioned this close proximity, this in-person tangible gathering of community and of love and appreciation in your corner of the world. Can you describe what a gathering, you know, how does that work? Oh, sure. So um, I began preparing for one this morning. So I was uh, curing the salmon uh, this morning, um, figuring out how to do that actually, um, because I, it's my first time. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it begins with um, generally uh, a weekly gathering, 2 p.m. We jump in the river, typically. That's our summer routine. And um, uh, we've got the beautiful Heart River that flows in the background here, a uh, nice little swimming hole. And, um, and so we begin with a connection uh, with the natural world and um, uh, a leap into Mother Nature's arms. And then uh, eventually, uh, we pull ourselves out uh, to the smoker, to the grill, to the uh, uh, kitchen table, and we start um, uh, putting a meal together. And um, and it's it's work and it's fun um, for us. It is just um, the opportunity to explore and learn, like like learning about the salmon this morning. Yep. Um, and food, oh, food is endless. Food is endlessly rich and beautiful. And so, um, just like a river, right? Like uh, it can it can uh, go forever. And and so we dive into that together, the preparation uh, work together. And actually, uh, a side note: a, a potluck is kind of where we end up. Um, people um, people do show up that didn't join us for the river uh, aspect and. And they they generally bring food, and it acts as such a beautiful filter, um, uh, because who ends up coming to a potluck are those people who are ready to embrace the unknown. Right? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't get to choose it. You don't get to expect it, and you might have to work for it even. And um, and so who ends up showing up is just. Uh, full of potential in the sense that that we we are building what we call a partnership ecosystem. And um, for a partnership to thrive, it needs people willing to show up and to contribute and generously. And so um, so the potluck uh, takes place and it's it's a immersion in food and conversation and music. Um, music is playing the whole time. We have, you know, 40 or 50 hours of music mix of different kinds. And we just absolutely love um, the music and poetry and food and, and nature all kind of um, pooling together. After the potluck, we typically go into what we call a kula. Um, at this point, we call it a kula. 
Um, you could call it many things. We've we've even come up with a name that is is not marketable, but um, but m- probably most applicable: uh, the alchemical mandala. Um, mm-hmm. We we um, we gather in a circle. Now it's it's not a um, a formulaic thing, but it just kind of happens. When you intend to sit down to listen to each other, that's the shape that just kind of happens. And so, um, and to listen to each other equally, not to have a head of the table and and a bunch of listeners, um, but to really listen to one another. And by the time you have 20 or 30 people, um, the math tells you that you're not going to be speaking most of the time. And so, um, uh, listening really takes the lead. Um, so we sit down at uh, seven or so in the evening with um, this kula, and it begins as um, uh, as openly as what's on your heart, what's on your mind, what's your body telling you, and and then people start to respond, and we eventually kind of start to orbit around a concept. We start to orbit around um, a theme. And um, some of these themes uh, can be, uh, they almost all actually quite unexpected. And um, and yet uh, by just starting with a listening to ourselves and trusting that, um, however unexpected it might be, it almost always is applicable right? Um, it comes straight out from us and, um, and not from a book that may be 3000 years old or not from a, um, not from prescription or program. So sorry, this theme, this theme just emerges. It emerges. Yeah. It's not like you plan a theme before you you begin. Right. You just, you open the floor and the theme emerges. And so, so we, um, as we explore that, it really becomes uh, a yoga experience in that it is such dedication to awareness of the space. And, and there is listening to what is being said. There's watching um, how people respond, watching their bodies, their movement. Um, it's listening to the spirit um, that does present in a place like that um, and is felt. Um, and at, at some point we, we meander through these conversations. I'll give you an example of a conversation. We had some touring musicians with us. We had about 10 traveling musicians with us one day and, and we ended up talking about place and home and how beautiful it was to hear someone who views home quite differently than I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having, having lived in this, in this valley that I love so much for most of my life, 45 uh, of my 47 years, um, the idea of being a, a constantly touring musician is foreign to me. And it was beautiful to hear about place and home and what it meant and how it, how it came into their lives um, and how it was different than mine. And then now we are working towards that concept we spoke about earlier, right? Understanding. And now we're connecting around something that um, we all might see quite differently. And so that 
meanders as it will. And then eventually it kind of comes to a natural close. And, um, and then we have a, a little bit of a decision tree of, of what to do next. And, and so that can open up to, we, we generally have some yoga practitioners with us. And so sometimes a yoga uh, instructor will step forward and say, well, um, a practice, an asana practice or, or a more physical body movement or a partnership exchange movement seemed fitting based on that conversation. Um, or sometimes no one steps forward with something like that and we simply jump back into the river. The, um, uh, the sun sets right down the belly of the Heart River um, the way it's oriented here from early July through the end of August. And so we call them sunset swims and they're just gorgeous. I mean, you, you, you sit in the water together and watch the light bounce off the valley um, and move through the tree trees and uh, clouds and, and it's pure magic. Um, or sometimes we move uh, quickly to a campfire, you know, as we go towards spring and fall, it's a little bit cooler. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll start the campfire a little bit earlier and, um, and that kind of uh, moves then into more individual conversations. Um, and then eventually, typically we will go to uh, a campfire concert. So we'll move from um, conversation to, to listening and, and sometimes singing together on the campfire and then uh, stargazing camp out. Uh, and then the best coolers don't end until after breakfast the next morning. And so that is um, every Saturday for us. Well, that sounds just so rich. And so I think the community and the connection that um, especially through COVID so many are longing for, you know, that idea of face-to-face -face human interaction, I think is so lacking in our world. And it just sounds so warm and inviting and open and um, a wonderful and rich idea to chew on, to, you know, begin wherever we are. And, and Nathan, I know that, you know, you have created this conscious community theory mm -hmm. that I feel as if it runs in that Kula, it runs, um, you know, you mentioned you, you and your wife run a beautiful vineyard. Um, it runs in your work. And so maybe we could kind of lean into that. You could explain what that is and how you see the connections there. Sure. Um, I'm going to use the word simplicity um, as we start to move into conscious community theory, because theory always sounds complex. Mm -hmm. And when I came yeah. into the academic space where I ended up um, coming up with conscious community theory and the language for it, I found a lot of complicated language. I found Michael Jensen's 65 page shareholder theory and uh, Edward Freeman, uh, his 300 page book on stakeholder theory and a lot of words. Um, and I'm a pretty simple person. And so I, I looked for simplicity in, in my own experience um, to come up with language that, that I could share that might be able to connect to other people's individual experience and then uh, to 
ultimately the organizations. That's that's where an organizational function theory eventually goes. Um, it goes to how an organization functions. So I started with simplicity. I want to jump back to the to the Kula concept just a little bit to make sure that we never lose sight of this concept of simplicity. Think about how simple the Kula is or the, or the gathering that we host. It's nothing. I mean, for years and years, my wife and I hosted these very complex, elaborate events. Right. They, were, they were themed. We had amplified sound. We had lights and, you know, and my wife is my Siddhartha, like she 20 years ago uh, was always asking, why do we do this? And I was the slow learner to uh, realize, well, we actually don't have to. Like all of that stuff is really about human expectation. And we are complex, especially in our mind. And we end up expecting things that we don't even want. Like that's how we work. We we work ourselves up or ourselves up into frenzies over um, that take us away from our core human experience. And so, um, as we started to think about conscious community theory and to step into this land of organizational function theory, um, what we discovered is that's exactly what the world had done societally we had worked ourselves up into such a frenzy, so proud of ourselves in our lengthy dictionaries, um, uh, in our many ways that we could uh, define and then um, express in a way that we could own, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, make proprietary and, um, and then preach, right? Like that's the human thing. And so, um, and it's also filled with with the, a term I'll I'll use purpose, right? Um, one person's purpose, and so if you look at the complexity in the way that we did, um, it became something to uh, to come up with an alternative to. It became something to avoid. Um, and so in, in all this complexity, one of the drivers for it that I saw was this concept of purpose. If you look at shareholder theory and stakeholder theory, both of them are purpose focused and we teach this, right? We teach this in our business schools, um, come up with your purpose triad, your mission, vision, values, your mission, your vision your values. And you might be able to sum all that up as your ego, right? Mm -hmm. And so now there's a place for that. There is a healthy place for that. It has resulted in some, some important things in our society, but it's also quite human centric. And, and if we're not careful, it can really destroy life without knowing because it's not aware. Purpose um, is how a school ground bully operates. Um, and so, so what is the equal and opposite to purpose? And could an organization take on that equal and opposite is the question that we asked. And, um, and so if you, 
there, there are a couple of ways you could look at that opposite, but one way we looked at it was awareness. Awareness um, is void of purpose, really. It's, it's taking in from the world around it. Mm-hmm. And we found it fascinating that especially in American culture, there, there were few organizational theories that touched on awareness-led function. And, and so uh, we came up with a theory that quite simply um, added awareness to the organizational lexicon. That's it. And so there's no 65-page thesis. There's no um, published uh, uh, articles and book about this because it's quite simple. Be aware. Bring awareness into your function. It's not just about your purpose. You know, purpose uh, in, in capitalism, our, our caffeinated kickstart uh, capitalist ways, we are phenomenal at executing our purpose and we have no idea how to stop. We have no idea how to reflect. Mm-hmm. And so what this organizational theory does is put out into the world the potential um, that an organization might exist simply to be and to help um, others in simply being. And, and in order to live simply like that and peacefully, um, you need to let go of a lot of your own purpose. And you need to let awareness lift up in your life in priority and to listen to it. Now, we don't let go of purpose entirely. Um, we call it a balance. A life supporting balance between purpose and awareness. And, um, and so where, um, where shareholder theory puts the owners on the board, conscious community theory puts scientists on the board. It puts community members on the board. It puts the natural world on the board through information. And and it doesn't ask an executive to fulfill the orders of power. It asks an analyst, a thinker, um, to take in the most information they can and to explore what options that gives in combination with what purpose the organization is trying to achieve. And so that balance is what we are seeking in conscious uh, community theory. And so when we uh, come back to simplicity here, and we recognize that conscious community theory is really just adding an equal and opposite awareness triad to what has already existed as a purpose triad, um, now we can take that and run with it in all kinds of directions. So that awareness triad is... um, Listening, awareness, um, understanding, and learning. And so through those three things, if we if we take on that lens and we now combine it with our purpose lens and we invest as much time in it, we, we invest as much time listening as we do missioning, mm-hmm. right? Now we as an organization um, uh, are seeing a whole new perspective 
on society. So um, an example that I often use is the 911 call center. Um, few people know that the 911 call center quite quietly and simply completely and radically revolutionized law enforcement. Um, well, so because the 911 call center is its purpose is to listen. It's, it's ears. Now you combine that with technology that supports the, the sharing of information. And now that information can be used. We're listening. We're understanding what your situation is. We're learning and we're going to respond. And, that, and then we're going to bounce back and forth between this life-supporting balance of, of awareness and purpose until our communities are safer. And, and now you, you notice that even still, our law enforcement boards are still focused on their mission, vision, and values. When they sit down for those budget meetings, they're prioritizing their budget. They're building their structure based on their mission, vision, and values. And the opportunity available to us is to understand that law enforcement potentially changed more than it ever has in history because of listening. And that the opportunity for us is to take that into the boardroom too and to really start to evaluate how are we listening? How are we coming to understandings? And how are we learning from those understandings? And, um, and once you take that into the boardroom, now your budgets restructure, your, um, you quickly get back to the kind of intimacy um, that we experience every Saturday in our Kula experience, in our, in our gatherings, um, because you have prioritized that connection. You no longer are, are pitting these op oppositional purposes and, and requiring that power win, right? Really requiring almost the way that we do dualistic thinking, that, that one prevail over the other you bring in the opportunity just to listen and learn. So a, a couple of things in response to that, that, that rise to my mind. The first thing is that as a culture, you know, we don't really honor that side right. as much, which I think you pointed out. We don't prioritize it. We don't budget for it, but also even in the Kula aspect, I think right now for so many there is this sense of division and polarity in our world. And so where does safety come in? You know, this idea of even just inviting a group of people, and it sounds like the Kula is not just your nearest and dearest, but people who you don't know very well all the time. Um, I think a lot of people love that idea. And yet that sense of safety, well, what if someone doesn't share my beliefs or my ideas? So how do we meet in the middle there and really listen with awareness? Beautiful question. And I, while you may have thought I spoke at length before, I, I maybe will surprise you at speaking at more length on this just because it's so important. This is critical. We 
have a belief, right? Um, as a people, we we need it almost. Uh, you look across the world and you see all these religions and their beliefs. And many of them take us away from our shared reality. Yes. Right? My belief in my God, my belief in my um, practices, my belief in my whatever it is. And a lot of it has a purpose lens. Um, so what we have missed is that there is another kind of belief that is possible. And it's actually a belief in this shared reality. So for instance, for me to pro-socially have the confidence to reach out to you the way that I did, to reach mm -hmm. out to Sophie Strand, there is belief behind that. And we don't think of it in the same way typically as, as somebody's belief in Christ or someone's belief in, in Muhammad or, or whatever. But for me, it is the same because my belief in leaping into the future with you is just as full of unknowns. I don't know how this will go. And so my belief is strong. My belief and in the world around me, it birthed me, right? It wanted me to be here. Like 4 billion years of desire resulted in me. I have to believe that it wanted me here. And so how is it? I ask that we come to believe in concepts like original sin or in concepts that would have us immediately doubting the worthiness of our own existence. It's odd to me. And I think it leads to a world of conflict um, when we immediately come out of the womb and, and we're, um, we're, heaping judgment on people. And so, and it's purpose-filled judgment. I want results. I want certain results from you as a human. And so here are the, here are the rules and structures I'm going to give you. And here's the, here's the belief that the humbling belief that you need in order to fit into my world. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we turn that on its head too? And we start to believe in a concept like original love. We start to believe in love as an evolutionary force that resulted in us all. We start to believe in the idea that um, maybe it is love that is the eternal reality that begins from energy and um, the idea of a, a prokaryote that just needs to merge with another cell, you know, maybe it, it is love that moves through time in this way that Sophie so beautifully writes about that results in us. And if that's true, then why wouldn't I believe in you? Right? Why wouldn't I believe in the world that, that brought me into existence?
And, um, and yes, sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're hopeful and disappointed. I am hopeful and disappointed all the time. I get over it. I, I'm not going to change my hopefulness. I'm going to learn and um, generally uh, what I find is um, sometimes my hopefulness was uh, overstated or un- unnecessary too. Like there's there's all kinds of ways that I can move from hopeful belief into functional future. And um, And so our spirituality and our reality can merge in this way. Like we don't need it to be a separate thing. We can believe, wholly believe in the moments we have together, in the shared reality we have together, the potential for understanding in that shared reality. We can believe in that just like you would believe in a God. And I say, why not? And when we approach, you know, if we're co-creators of this reality, and when we Mm. approach, you know, even the name of your community of love and appreciation, when we approach life and each other or our organizations or our communities or our societies from that belief of just love and appreciation, then any there more possibilities are open to us. You can't go wrong with those two words, I think. I, I haven't found a way. If there was a way, I would probably remove the word. Yeah. Um, love. Oh, it's such a, a macro concept, right? It is everything. It's so huge and encompassing so much. And, and ultimately, it is a life-nourishing, life-supporting, future-creating, co-creating concept. And so... Um, Yes, that word I can stand by. Appreciation. Man, think of a life where you look around and you just see thousands of appreciation journeys that you could go on. I could go on an appreciation journey with you. I could go on an appreciation journey with every guitar in this room, all the poetry on the walls. I could go on an appreciation journey with my kids, my wife, my um, loves, my river. The, I mean, my, I say my, it's not mine, but you understand like these, these are, they're waiting for us each and every day. And why not? And, and the answer to that is because we are wrapped up in somebody's purpose. You know, ultimately we are all working and yes, there's a core purpose. We need to eat. We need to do raise our children to do these things. But beyond that, we have (laughs) gone way off the rails. We, we are, inventing purpose in all directions at once and and enslaving people to work for what it kind of it goes back to me thinking about our winery earlier on and the events we threw and the complexity of those and the work that we went through to achieve them and now how simple this kula is how we do nothing to prepare that we would not otherwise do for our own family and yet it's infinitely more enjoyable because it is pure connection, pure joy and love and appreciation of each other. So yes, in that name is the kind of simplicity that we wanted. Um, 
the Bible has about 780,000 words. And for us, that's too much. Um, and so we tried to whittle it down. And, and actually, um, before the, the loving involvement of a dear friend, it was just going to be the community of appreciation as just a way to um, bring our world together. Um, if we looked at each other as, as if you look at everyone as something that you could potentially appreciate, isn't that so different than looking at them as something potentially to avoid? And, mm -hmm. and so we began with that word and, and it wasn't until a friend came along and so astutely said, well, Nathan, yeah, it's like that uh, Beatles song. All you need is appreciation. Obviously, the word was love, but um, she, what she was subtly telling me is, Nathan, you need love in there. And she's right. I just had not yet fully let go of the lens on love that my society had handed me, which was much more about, much more controversial, much more about desire and and lust and and um, fixation and attachment and all these other things. Um, I needed her. I needed awareness of, of her in order to learn that love is um, much, much bigger than we have defined it. And, um, and so we added that word and there we go. We're, we're done. I, I think love and appreciation um, is big enough to hold everything. Absolutely. And, you know, a couple of things. So the idea of simplicity in gathering, I mean, even growing up in my house, my mother was a wonderful entertainer, but, you know, before anyone entered our house, the joke was that, you know, closets in the upstairs room that would have to be cleaned. So there was this level of work and perfection really before mm -hmm. it was a barrier to mm -hmm. gathering. And so I think the simplicity in gathering, I think, um, is so key. But one, you know, I I'm with you. Um, those who know me know that, you know, love for me is the matrix of the universe. But I can hear or feel other people listening who are really seeping in, you know, the American way in capitalism and making things happen that say, okay, well, if everyone just loves and appreciates one another, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to grow my business? Um, Can you know, I answer, don't sir? I need that? Yes, I would love to hear your response <laughs> to that. Well, this is the, the reason for love being in there. Um, it puts you to work. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but love puts you to work. The beautiful thing about the work that it puts you to is that you know when you're done, you know, and you can rest. Mm -hmm. And so it puts you to work feeding your children. It puts you to work um, caring for your partner and ensuring that, that they have the life that they want, even while they have dedicated their life to you. It puts you to work um, caring for your community um, because you know there's interdependence there. Um, and 
um, that others are relying on you in some way. Um, it puts you to work caring for this earth in a way that we have never woken up to, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we we were. I think we did have a, a deep knowledge of of the work of caring for this precious shared reality, this earth, before. But going forward, we need to relearn that. And that will bury us in work, right? And all of that is life-sustaining work. Um, And so that's how we feed our families. It's just that we maybe, um, you know, let going to Mars come down the priority list a bit. We maybe let the idea of the fanciest resort in Dubai um, uh, dropping down the priority list a little bit. We let the idea of vacationing, going somewhere to be dazzled by a new physical reality and be served by a community that we pay, we maybe let that be replaced by a connection where we go to our neighbor's house and we ask how they're doing and and potentially um, end up having a really good time. Um, it's, it, it's different kinds of work. Um, but love ensures that life happens. It just knows when to stop. Yeah. You know, I think in our current model, be it, you know, the Dow or, um, growth, there's just this constant growth. So in, in hearing you talk about the Kula or you are also referencing this natural rhythm of growth and periods of rest, be it the natural Mm -hmm. cycle of our earth or, and we don't, it doesn't feel like we have that built into our current society. It's just, (laughs) we're just, you know, using as many resources as we possibly can without any sense of taking a breath. We don't know how to stop. We don't know how to take a breath. Um, We know how to execute purpose better than any society in history. And we need to stop. We need to learn what parts of that are fantastic and and helpful Mm -hmm. and what parts of it are deadly. And, And we need to learn to let go of the deadly parts. I mean, I'm not anti-capitalist. I teach it. I teach capitalism at the university. Um, I'm pro-freedom, you know? And Ursula Le Guin kinds of freedom. My favorite writers. Mm -hmm. I love her. Yep. And Milton Friedman kinds of freedoms. They actually um, overlap. In a purpose-filled world, they see themselves as enemies um, in a conscious community world, they recognize, wait a second, our massive overlap is freedom. That's what we want. The radical center, right? We are radical centers everywhere in every direction between us. That's the interstitial. Um, 
and we're missing it because we have so perfected the edge, the wall, the boundary of our own ideology. We miss the fact that, oh, it actually, that's, that's our fallacy. This edge doesn't exist. We have created it in our mind. We have created this, this idea of an edge um, and uh, a certainty and a definition. Um, and in truth, um, we are simply creatures. We are simply beings trying to f- figure out how to live together. Um, I've always said that world negotiations should take place naked in a swimming hole <laughs> so that, you know, like uh, Ukraine, get Putin and Zelensky into the swimming hole naked. Who knows what could happen, right? When you finally remember that you're a human, actually that you're a creature and you're being held by Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Whatever was on your mind quickly becomes unimportant. You know? You wrote this beautiful quote that I wanted to share, or you spoke it, I'm not sure. Our Earth is talking to us. Our coral reefs and forests, the salmon, the whales, our anxious children. These are all talking to us and we're not listening. And then a little farther on in that interview, should all life on earth exist to support a system or should all systems on earth exist to support life? Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. I'm tearing up just because I'm so thankful that you took time to read that. And I haven't heard those words in a while. And, oh, those come from my core. Our anxious children, our children are so anxious. And we're making it so complex. It doesn't need to be so complex. Uh, The greatest gift of COVID was being able to stay home with my children for two solid months. I'd never had that in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Either, either I was home and they were at school or they were home and I was at work. And what I quickly began to prioritize is sleep. Sleep in, kids. Please. And what I saw immediately was the positive effect on that. You know, when we simply let life do its thing, it got us here. Four billion years of sleep got us here. What are we doing thinking we got to plug these children into programs in all directions? Mm -hmm. Their body is saying sleep. So let them sleep. And their body will say, I want to play. Let them play. The body will say, I want to learn. Let them learn. Their body will say, I want to plug into that program. Let them plug into that program. Life is far more intelligent than me. And so learning to trust the bodies of our children, learning to listen to this sea creature, 
that has lived for hundreds of thousands of years is so critically important. And it has nothing to do with our agenda, what we want to do. And so, yes, um, we have a lot of answers arguing with answers. And where's the question? So they're all the answers are wrong by some degree. Mm -hmm. And I don't have an answer. I'm not coming to the table with an answer. I'm coming to the table with a question. Awareness is a question. And so once you come to the table with a question, such as child, how are you feeling? Or child, who are you? Or who are you becoming? Now you start to learn from life as opposing as opposed to coming to that child with answers that have oppositional answers that you duke out and then eventually someone wins and you inject it into your child, right? Um, when we create a world of dueling answers and we force these arguments into power in the way that we do. And eventually someone prevails and we move ahead with that answer. We will always have life working for systems. If that's the case, we will always have life working for systems. It's not until you realize that all the systems have problems because they're not life, right? Right. They, they can't they haven't yet merged with life. Um, they are working their way towards that. Um, our minds are working our, their way towards this kind of merging, but we're not there yet. And to put life in service to these systems at this point in our history is deadly. And it is limiting. It is maiming. Um, tragically denying life and life experience. Um, so why can't we all get on the, on board with the idea that there is merit to capitalism? There is some. Um, we wouldn't be talking, you and I, if there weren't merit to that. And in fact, if we learn that capitalism, one of the reasons that it is so helpful is that it empowers the individual, the life to create. And it empowers an individual to work with another individual and to co-create. Like there's, there's something magical there and we need to teach it to stop. We need to give it options to learn and to reflect and stakeholder theory, which is in essence government. Yeah. There's something valuable there too. Um, represented forms of Organiza organizational function, they do some incredible things and <laughs> they also failed. I mean, the USSR, there's a reason that collapsed and, and it wasn't because another side won. It's because it 
it couldn't create. It couldn't create in the way, co-create in the way that capitalism does. And so all these systems, all these technologies, there is value we can pull from them. But why do we make any of them the cage that we sit in? Why don't we make all of them the stage that we dance on? Why don't we make all of them this support for our life, our precious life, and our shared reality? Now, they, they will all shrink in size if we do this, right? They will all shrink in importance. And thank heavens, right? Thank heavens yeah. that we would maybe prioritize joy with each other over work for power. Um, dancing on a stage, that analogy I love so much because it's true. That's what happens when you start to intellectually get a grasp of all these systems enough to put them to work for you and your children and your community and to let go of the idea that anyone holds the answer for anything. Clearly life didn't go that direction. There would be one of us if life thought that was the answer. Right. As it stands, there are 39 trillion parts to each one of us. We're not even the majority of our own selves. Most of us are microorganisms that host on us. And so what does that tell us about life? The intelligence of life is in the coming together of all these things. And so I, I'm reminded of this, one of my favorite creation stories or myths. <clears throat> I think it's from the Jewish tradition, this idea that at the moment of creation, there was this mirror in the sky that shattered into trillions of small pieces. And we mm -hmm. each got, we each got a shred, right. Or a shard. And it's only when we come together, right. When life coalesces that, that the view becomes useful or more whole, mm -hmm. right. Because for my small piece, I can see a tiny part of the world. You can see a tiny, but it's this coming together where the magic really lies and how we come back to wholeness as one. That is so true. Um, and it's people talk about me sometimes as extroverted and they have no idea how introverted I am, but what I value is the experience of coming together. I value that so highly that through years and years of discomfort socially, um, I dedicated to it. Uh, it made me better. It, it taught me. And, and so that's every Kula. I get goosebumps several times. Goosebumps for me are a sign of transformation. My body's um, changing, growing, learning. Maybe it's scared. Maybe it's excited. It's all kinds of things. But this happens because of the magic of coming together. Um, and, and it's not just when people assemble, it can be the coming together into a natural space and recognizing the assemblance that is there. Um, uh, it can happen in all kinds of ways, but you're right. Um, that is a beautiful way uh, 
that is a beautiful lens through which you can see creation or the idea of creation. Um, and, and then the endless possibilities that exist as it, as it comes back together. Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, I've so enjoyed our time. I have this sense that you and I could talk for hours. Um, I'm really grateful for the work and to call it work seems even trivial. The, the presence that you bring to the world and these kulas, both, you know, in person in your beautiful Valley um, and in the metaverse or on Facebook um, <laughs> and, and really something, you know, so I'm going to uh, link that because I think people listening may want to check that out. It really just does have a, it, it struck me as a different feel. So there's something that's being transmitted in that space that feels different. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so I just want to thank you for your time. I want to ask if there's anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about or how you feel in landing. I do have a, a closing comment that comes to mind just now. So I have to form it here, but um, I'm a worker. I'm a laborer in this world. There was a time where I was an executive and there was a time where I prioritized that title and, and felt, um, importance in it and felt, um, that it was, uh, necessary for achieving my purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. As I've taken on this new lens, I have accepted different roles in the work world, different roles in my community, um, in my family, and they tend to be much more integrated roles. They tend to be much more um, roles where I can be one-on-one with others, with life, Um, not so much the executive, more the taking in of information and the sharing of that information. And I believe in that approach. And so what I want to say to every listener is that I encourage you to stop looking to the executives for answers. I encourage you to look in the mirror and to value your contribution, whatever it is, and to fill it to its fullest, to let it be its fullest, to bring all of you into it, and to understand that in that way, you can affect the kind of change that and, and movement toward peace and movement toward a more loving world that no executive and no force could ever achieve. And so if, if I can come up with the right words here, it is encouragement to have faith in yourself and in the world around you. Consider believing that you are made of original love. Consider believing 
that the moments you might engage with um, the world around you, the people around you, consider believing that they might move toward a more beautiful shared reality. And consider that simply by being open to that belief, it might become real. So incredibly beautiful, such a wonderful thought to leave us with. Um, Nathan, I'm so grateful. I feel your presence. Um, I feel your open-heartedness towards towards me, towards everyone listening, towards life itself. And I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Avine. Thank you.